Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, happy Tuesday. Thank you for listening, whether it's on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever it is you podcast, if that's what you do. We thank you for tuning in, liking, subscribing, following the show. As a former University of Georgia student, I think I'm a 29th year sophomore, resident of athens Clark County, huge Georgia Bulldog athletic fan. I almost said football, but I, I really enjoy going to the basketball games, the baseball games as well when I have the opportunity to. I've yet to punch my ticket to a softball game, but my friend Cody in Hartwell keeps imploring me. Come on, let's go catch a game. I mean, I play softball. I should go watch softball, right? Yes, I should. Anyway, as someone with ties to that university and that community, and of course support for that school's athletic endeavors, I'm always mindful of situations where tragedy strikes Athens, Georgia, the University of Georgia. The tragedy that struck the university most recently is the unspeakable murder of a 22-year-old college student, nursing student, Augusta University nursing student, allegedly by a 26-year-old Jose Antonio Ibarra, an undocumented citizen living in the United States from Venezuela. We laid the foundation for this story a good bit yesterday. Lakin went out for a jog, never returned. Her roommate alerted authorities. She was found unresponsive near a lake. Surveillance video spots Ibarra. He's arrested. And now political attention has turned to athens Clark County, which deems itself to be a sanctuary city. The local prosecutor, a progressive. And on the broader scale, this country's inability to coalesce around immigration reform measures and proper funding for Border Patrol, because after all, this is an election year. I mean, I'd like to be not so cynical, but the fact remains that the 22-year-old deceased student's body hadn't even gotten cold when Congressman, Governor, Brian Kemp, all hopped on social media or jumped in front of a dais with microphones hot to start portraying this situation as a Biden has blood on his hands. Disaster. Governor Brian Kemp again wasted very little time hopping on social media and releasing statements to condemn not only the murder, but Biden border policy. Spoke at the Athens Area Chamber of Commerce breakfast yesterday. Here are his words. Uh, Like Michael said, our hearts are breaking this morning for the family of Lake and Riley. I had to honor of speaking to her parents over the weekend and though they are bearing the pain that no parents should ever endure and of having to plan for bearing their child they're thankful for our prayers and our ongoing justice to see Lakin's killer brought to justice. Marty and I will continue to keep their family, their friends and the university community in our thoughts and prayers. This community all of Georgia and the entire country have been rocked by this inexcusable and avoidable murder. 
Lakin's life should not have ended so soon. And we need to demand justice for what happened to her. She deserves justice. Her family deserves justice. And we need justice on a national level to prevent this type of thing from happening again. Lakin's death is a direct result of failed policies on the federal level and an unwillingness by this White House to secure the southern border. Okay, we have a lie right off the bat. First of all, some context. On President Donald Trump's final full day in office, January 19, 2021, Trump issued a memorandum directing the Department of Homeland Security and the State Department to take action to defer, with certain exceptions, for 18 months, the removal of any Venezuelan national or individual without nationality who last habitually resided in Venezuela, who is present in the United States. 18 months from January 19th, 2021. Now pay attention because this is not me pinning blame for this murder on Donald Trump. This is a bipartisan problem. So Donald Trump, January 19, 2021, issues a proclamation asking State Department, Department of Homeland Security to defer deportations for Venezuelans or anyone who had resided in Venezuela who suddenly found themselves in the United States. That lasted for 18 months, taking us into July of 2022. Less than three months later, October 12th, 2022, the Department of Homeland Security announced new migration enforcement proceeds with four Venezuelans. I'm going to read for you the release. Today, as part of the Biden-Harris administration's ongoing work to build a fair, orderly, and secure immigration system, the Department of Homeland Security announces joint actions with Mexico to reduce the number of people arriving at our southwest border and create a more orderly and safe process for people fleeing the humanitarian and economic crisis in Venezuela. Listen to the next line here. Almost four times as many Venezuelans as last year attempted to cross our southern border placing their lives in the hands of ruthless smuggling organizations. Did you hear that again? Almost four times as many Venezuelans as last year attempted to cross our southern border. Encouraged by what? Could it be that the same rationale that the right likes to use for the ramping up of illegal border crossings under President Biden's administration, you know, the permissiveness, could it be that the same permissiveness had been signaled by former President Donald Trump on January 19th, 2021, when he literally said for 18 months, if you are here from Venezuela, we're not going to deport you. Congressman Mike Collins, Governor Brian Kemp, among others who have been very vocal about the Lake and Riley murder of an undocumented Venezuelan living in this country mentions not one word about the permissiveness of a literally 11th hour walking out the door executive order from former President Donald Trump, which I don't understand from Brian Kemp because he's no fan of Donald Trump. Let's get back to more of his statements uh, from that uh, breakfast gathering of the uh, Athens Chamber of Commerce on Monday morning. 
to demand better from this administration. And that's something that I've been doing since I've taken office. He hasn't, by the way, said a word to House Speaker Mike Johnson about taking up legislation that the president has signaled he would support and that a bipartisan group in the U.S. Senate has crafted. Other governors across the country. And we've renewed that call multiple times, including again this weekend when I sent a letter to the president demanding more information on the illegal immigrants in our country, where they are, and if they've broken any of our laws. He did not send a letter to House Speaker Mike Johnson about the current immigration bill that could still be worked on if it were ever brought to a vote in the U.S. House. Because of the president's failures, we don't know all that we should. But we do know this. More than eight and a half million illegal immigrants have crossed the border since President Biden took office. He doesn't mention how many of those have actually been turned around, but that's a big number, so we've got to throw that number out. In November of last year alone, over 1,700 pounds of fentanyl were seized at the southern border. Most of that coming on the backs, in the pockets, or in the vehicles of Americans returning to the United States. 16,000 pounds of meth. 169 people on the terror watch list were encountered at the southern border in fiscal year 2023. And obviously, they're not roaming the streets today because they were encountered. An all-time record. Those drugs, weapons, and dangerous criminals that aren't stopped at the border head to other states just like ours. In fact, there was a 55% increase in cases involving fentanyl seizures here in Georgia by the GBI between 2022 and 2023. Here's the other thing that that kills me. The, the, The GOP has been applauding the fact that the Texas governor, uh, Greg Abbott, and the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, have been, instead of containing any of these uh, undocumented folks at the southern border, just spreading them around the country. So if you want to be outraged that folks are not only entering the United States illegally uh, uh, with uh, without documentation, but also making their way throughout the country, you can't also be applauding when you have nefarious governors who are literally spreading folks across the United States via bus or via plane. That doesn't even include all the seizures by local law enforcement. It is an understatement to say that this is a major crisis. And because of the White House's failures, every state, as I've said repeatedly, is now a border state. Again, he fails to mention the House. And he fails to mention that the governors of border states, or Ron DeSantis, who is the governor of a state that's not a border state, has been spreading the undocumented population throughout the country. No, it's just a White House problem. And only a White House problem under this administration, despite the fact that the welcome mat for Venezuelan undocumented people was put down at our doorstep by the prior president. Riley's murder is just the latest proof of that. Just yesterday, Immigration and Customs Enforcement confirmed that her killer was in the country illegally, that he had been arrested in 2022 and was paroled and released back onto our streets. He was then arrested again last year in New York for trying to hurt a child and other charges. That is a failure of our system on multiple levels. 
and at multiple times, and it has resulted in a young woman's death. Hey, listen, I'm not going to quibble that we don't have an immigration problem. We, we, we have a patchwork process, an underfunded one at that. Uh, again, there's legislation on the table that a bipartisan group of senators have worked on that if the House would take up, would get passed. And, by the way, would be signed by the President of the United States, who has signaled an interest in ramping up federal border protections if he could just get the legislation to fund it. I could play for you the rest of Brian Kemp's speech in Athens Monday morning, but he's, he's not going to mention the fact that we had a border policy getting crafted in 2001, bipartisan effort, and then 9-11 happened. We could talk about the McCain-Kennedy bill that came up in 2005. It would have created an essential work visa that would have allowed 400,000 workers a year to work in the U.S., as well as a path to a legal residency, also boosted border protection. It never got a vote in the Senate in 2005. We could look at 2007 when uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, a Democrat from Nevada, wanted a compromise bill that came with a path to citizenship visas for high-skilled workers and funding for more border barriers, border enforcement technology, and agents. The bill had bipartisan support from John Kyle of Arizona, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, and others, and had solid backing from... President Bush, it was filibustered, so it never got a vote in the U.S. Senate. 2013, President Barack Obama in the White House, a bipartisan group of senators, remember the Gang of Eight, they worked on an immigration reform bill that was approved in the Senate. It included a path to legal status, eventual citizenship. It established goals such as putting up 700 miles of border fencing. This is President Obama in 2013, y'all. Border fencing and getting an employment verification system up and running before people who were in the country illegally could apply for legalization. Would have added as many as 40,000 Border Patrol agents. A less celebrated bipartisan group of eight members was working on a bill in the House, but it disintegrated without having introduced a bill. House Speaker John Boehner of Ohio announced that there would be no movement on immigration in 2013. And of course, as we famously know, and as I've mentioned many times so far, just in this first segment, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators crafted immigration Legislation that not only would have toughened our immigration policies, but would have funded our southern border protections in a way that they are obviously needed. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, at the behest of former President Donald Trump, will not take action on that bill because solving a problem that they say needs to be addressed right away can wait until after Election Day. And by the way, can we just talk about how... (laughs) Again, politicians race to the dais, race to social media to be outraged over this senseless murder. And it is disgusting. It is gross. Women should be able to go for a jog and feel safe. My issue with the panderous politicians racing to make statements on social media or behind daises with microphones and media present is, Where was your outrage in this same university town when a young female staff member of the athletic department drunkenly drove herself and a football player to his death after a night of partying? Where was the outrage? No calls for new legislation or stricter policy enforcement or any of that stuff. Is that any less a tragedy? Governor Brian Kemp, a huge Georgia Bulldog fan, gave no press conferences in the aftermath of that. 
He tweeted that morning around 9.55 a.m., our hearts break for the young lives lost last night and their families. We are lifting up their loved ones, friends, and teammates in prayer this morning. Not much more ever said or tweeted about that incident from Governor Brian Kemp. But it, too, was a tragedy, right? No calls for tougher penalties for street racing. In fact, the, the person that the woman was street racing, the woman who died was street racing, is a football player in the NFL by the name of Jalen Carter. There just, I guess, didn't seem to be a way to tie that to any policies of President Joe Biden. So, no political hay to make with this. So, thoughts and prayers. And we'll continue to wait to see if Republicans are serious and want to start putting pressure on House Speaker Mike Johnson to get some action on immigration reform. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. You can catch The Ron Show if you don't already via podcast on all the major podcast platforms. And I had a great conversation yesterday with the staff at the Progressive Voices Network getting uh, this show on their on-demand tab and soon... We will at least start with a weekend version of this show, I believe, weekend after next. Now, those of you who wake up each morning or you listen to the replay weekday afternoons 5 to 6 on America One Radio, fret not. This is a Ron serves all sort of scenario. I'm so grateful to America One Radio for giving this show its opportunity, its platform, from day one, <laughs> I literally reached out to uh, Jeremy Brazil at America One Radio, and I introduced myself, and I said what I wanted to do, and he said, okay, would you like a weekend slot? And I said, no, no, I don't want a weekend slot. Not, not that I didn't want or appreciate the opportunity. I just knew that if I put a project on my plate that was once a week, it was going to fall by the wayside, versus if I told myself, it's just one hour, dude. Just do one hour each day that I would get into the habit of doing that. And so he said, uh, okay, well, why don't you do a week of test shows? And I did a week of test shows, and he says, okay, so it looks like you can do this. Let's give it a go. I mean, that's that's bold, right? I mean, it's not like it costs him anything, but it's still a time slot on America One Radio, a, a project of his, a, a Pet project side hustle, something he's very passionate about, and I'm very appreciative of that. And so I'm always going to be loyal to America One Radio because uh, America One Radio and Jeremy Brazil gave me that opportunity. Real quick, I want to get back to the Venezuelan immigration situation. October of 2022, Biden and Harris uh, released some new policy. Uh, let me go back to reading some of that. Effective immediately. This is October 2022. Venezuelans who enter the United States between ports of entry without an authorization will be returned to Mexico. At the same time, the United States and Mexico are reinforcing their coordinated enforcement operations to target human smuggling organizations and bring them to justice. That campaign will include new migration checkpoints, additional resources and personnel, joint targeting of human smuggling organizations, and expanded information sharing related to transit nodes, hotels, stash houses, and staging locations. The United States is also planning to offer additional security assistance to support regional partners to address the migration challenges in the Darien Gap. 
Our comprehensive effort to reduce the irregular migration of Venezuelans also includes a new process to lawfully and safely bring up to 24,000 qualifying Venezuelans into the United States. The United States will not implement this process without Mexico keeping in place its independent but parallel effort to accept the return of Venezuelan nationals who bypass this process and attempt to enter irregularly. That's not Trump-Pence. That's Biden-Harris, October of 2022. 20 months after the Trump administration, Donald, on his last full day in office, wrote a memorandum allowing for 18 months of deferred enforcement of deportation, specifically of Venezuelan undocumented immigrants in the United States. And if you're wondering why, well, you know, communism bad, socialism bad, capitalism good, posture. What was the result? Four times as many undocumented immigrants coming from Venezuela in the following year. This is The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. It's uh, Thursday morning that I'm going to have a friend of the show, Melita Easters, from the Georgia Win List on to help me understand uh, or make any sense whatsoever of the Alabama Supreme Court decision regarding in vitro fertilization. Embryos are humans. I can't for the life of me make any sense of it, but I also could use a little help because I'm a man, a man who's not even trying to couple up with a woman who might be looking to have a child through in vitro fertilization. So I'm trying to understand the ramifications, the implications of that. She will join the show Thursday to help me understand how this works with their, air quotes, pro-life movement. Speaking of their, air quotes, pro-life movement, Georgia is now one of only 10 states in the United States not to offer Medicaid expansion to aid in the health and wellness of its poorest citizens. According to a NPR piece just five days ago, in December, North Carolina became the latest state to expand Medicaid, and now GOP power brokers in Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia suggest there might be an opening to join them eventually. Over plates of fried chicken and mashed potatoes, Georgia legislators and policymakers, including many Republicans, gathered near the state capitol to hear from neighboring states that took the plunge. It was not a pleasant journey very early on. That is the word of North Carolina Republican Representative Donnie Lambeth. I was one of the few Republicans. My party would not accept it. But I would tell you, you need to be patient and don't give up. That's a Republican talking to state legislators here in Georgia from his home state of North Carolina, which, by the way, recently took the Medicaid expansion plunge. Lambeth said he spent almost a decade trying to convince his colleagues in the GOP-controlled legislature to expand Medicaid several times. He almost gave up. But Lambeth stuck with it, framing his pitch as, quote, closing the coverage gap instead of, quote, expanding Medicaid, and telling his colleagues the stories he heard from people around the state. The tree farmers in Ash County, the strawberry farmers down east, the thing they all told me is, we don't have health insurance, but we have a family farm we're going to lose if we have a catastrophic event. Lambeth also assured Georgia lawmakers that none of his GOP colleagues lost a primary over their support for expansion. Well, I can explain that. Actually, I'll let 11 Alive, WXIA-TV, explain that. 
A new poll from the AJC shows more than two-thirds of Georgia voters support full Medicaid expansion. Also this nugget. In the past year, Georgia has cut off Medicaid coverage for more than 380,000 people, including more than 149,000 children. Oh my God, children. We care about children. We're pro-life. Cutting off health insurance coverage for hundreds of thousands of them. This doesn't make sense. According to a recent Georgetown University study, one in 10 Georgians report knowing someone who has died through pregnancy-related causes. An estimated 57% of Georgians have experienced or know someone who has experienced maternal morbidity. Over 70% of Georgians believe that prioritizing improvements in access to health insurance coverage would help to reduce maternal mortality. These statistics were shared at the first annual symposium to address the maternal health crisis in Georgia, hosted by Emory University, Morehouse School of Medicine, Mercer University School of Medicine, and Research America. Further down in this study, Georgia has passed the 12-month postpartum extension option under Medicaid, enabling more women to get needed care. However, the postpartum extension only covers women during pregnancy and up to one year postpartum. Preconception care also matters for maternal health and birth outcomes. Women who only gain access to coverage when they become pregnant bring untreated health conditions that put them at higher risk for adverse health outcomes. States that have taken up the Medicaid expansion option have seen their uninsurance rates plummet significantly and scores of analyses have linked expansion to improved financial security. Did you hear that? Financial security access to care, health outcomes, and reduce disparities by race, ethnicity, and income. Instead, this General Assembly session, we've seen conservatives offer up tax holidays for buying guns and ammunition, book bans, and attacking the trans community. Georgia's elected Democrats at the state level have been waiting for more than a decade to have a conversation with the right about Medicaid expansion. And all they got this session was, we'll do a study group on it. Okay, so at least another year. House Democrats held a press conference imploring their counterparts to do something more. Taking the, I'd argue, more pro-life stance. First up, Democrat House Minority Leader James Beverly. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for being here this afternoon, uh, gathering with us today. Georgia House Democrats, if you know, stand before you today to urge our Republican colleagues once again to join our effort in expanding Medicaid. Democrats have been fighting for years to see this happen, and we are willing to work with anyone under the gold zone to effectuate this change. That is the goal that we have put before the state of Georgia, and we will work in a bipartisan way to make sure that it happens. As it stands now, Georgia is one of only 10 states that has still not expanded Medicaid. This month, this month, Mississippi said they intended to expand Medicaid. Mississippi said they intend to expand Medicaid in a bipartisan measure. Let me be clear, full Medicaid expansion would expand coverage to more than 400,000 uninsured Georgians. And more than two-thirds of Georgia voters right now today support full Medicaid expansion. The time is now to expand Medicaid. Hardworking Georgians, quite frankly, are dying from preventable, treatable illnesses. Why? 
their diagnosis, they're too poor to go to the doctor. The state of healthcare in Georgia could not be more dire. House Democrats come here today to urge our colleagues to come to the table and strike a deal that works for Georgia families. They're counting all of us to get it done and close the Medicaid gap here in Georgia once and for all. We're saying close the Medicaid gap now. I'd like to pass it to my dear friend and whip, Sam Parker. Uh, thank you, Leader Beverly. Uh, so good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, 10 years ago, as some of y'all may know, uh, my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Uh, she was given four to six months to live without treatment. Four to six months. Um, it's already been 10 years uh, since Republicans passed legislation to make it more difficult uh, to, to expand Medicaid. And yet, even now, even though there is a desire to expand Medicaid, it seems Republican politics is preventing them from taking uh, uh, action on this incredibly important issue in which time really is of the essence. An analogy was shared to me, which I think is very apt on this issue, in which imagine a room, uh, an ER, an emergency room, emergency department that is full of patients and the doctor comes out and says, we need one more year. People who have been diagnosed with terminal illnesses, they do not have an additional year. Democrats, uh, myself and my colleagues, we've introduced legislation, House Bill 62 in particular, uh, as a solution to this problem. And we are asking, we are welcoming and asking Republicans to come to the table to help address this issue for the benefit of all Georgians. This should not be a political issue, even though the issue has unfortunately been politicized. House Bill 62, which we introduced last year, is modeled after legislation uh, passed and enacted in the state of Montana. And the effects of that bill are very, very clear. Again, that's HB 62, the Georgia Help Act. Uh, in Montana, they covered more than 100,000 people in two years, and they saw more than $2 billion in economic act activity during that same period of time. Here in Georgia, we would see more than, more than 400,000 Georgians be covered, and again, see billions of dollars of economic activity as a result of expanding Medicaid and doing the right thing. So again, uh, myself and my colleagues, we will continue to work and advocate on this issue because it is that important for the people of Georgia. Uh, so again, we will continue to urge and continue to open the door for Republicans to come across the aisle, to have the courage to put aside their politics and do what's in the best interest of all Georgians. Uh, with that, I will turn it over to Representative Dr. Michelle Allen. Thank you, Whip Park. Good afternoon, everyone. So while not every position has the same personality, I think that the approach that serves our patients best, generally speaking, is to approach problems uh, pragmatically while remaining optimistic. And even when the prognosis is grim, we can be realistic when the outlook seems poor. And even as we continue to hope and work and strive for the best possible outcome, because that is what our patients need and deserve from us. So I think many of us entered this session optimistic about the prospect of passing full Medicaid expansion this year. Not, not someday, not next year, but this year, as hundreds of thousands of patients watched and hoped and waited for the same. I think it's fair to say, and everyone in this room is probably well aware, 
that the odds appear to have shifted drastically since January. Some, I think, have written off the issue entirely, chalking it up to intentions that outstripped our political will. Some say it was foolish that we ever hoped it could happen. But until that gavel comes down on Sine die, I will not believe that. Because I still believe that this body can accomplish something transformative together. And until it's over, I think we owe it to people to try. Over the past few months, I've had so, so many conversations with our Republican colleagues, talking dozens of strong moral members of the Republican leadership who have told me privately and increasingly publicly that they recognize unavoidably that full Medicaid expansion must be the way forward for our state. And while they fight a partisan monster of their own creation, this can no longer be a partisan issue, but a practical, fiscally responsible, ethically clear choice. How they can know this and still be able to walk away from this hope and this expectation and say, maybe we'll try again next year, is beyond my comprehension. Because some of those waiting for healthcare coverage may not have a next year. And frankly, some of us might not have a next year either. A technical point that I think is important to make today as we are um, watching the end of our House committee meeting that we just saw, the reason Georgia has so many rural hospital closures is not because of COM law. The reason Georgia has so many rural hospital closures is due to the huge burden of uncompensated care costs in a state with one of the highest uninsurance rates in the nation. And while I appreciate the attention to rural communities, revising CON alone does not increase care access for patients in the coverage gap. Just like opening 20 new restaurants would not address chronic hunger in those who cannot afford to buy food. This is my fourth year in the legislature and every single day I've spent in this job, I hear people talking about strategies to gain and hold on to the majority. I understand that this has been part of the strategy here too, as every decision is weighed against its enhancement or detraction from that majority hold on power. But what is the point of having that power if you cannot use it for such a clear and powerful good? It's been 10 years. We don't need more meetings. We don't need another study committee. We do not need another joint commission to tabulate and retabulate the numbers that we already have. Why are you still so afraid? What are you waiting for? You fight to hold the majority so that you have the ability to act. You hold the majority so that you have the power to do what you think is right. And if you can't do that, consider why you deserve to hold the majority at all. So I'm a realist. I recognize a poor prognosis when I see it, but I owe it to my patients and to all our patients to note that there is still time. So many of our Republican colleagues know that full Medicaid expansion is the right choice. I know because they've told me. I just wish they would tell Georgians this too, not just in word, but in deed. But there is still time. So on day 24 of the legislative session, I implore our majority leaders to please, please come to the table, join us to deliver what our voters want, which is simply to work together on real solutions. We cannot do this without you. I know because we've tried. And I've run out of ways to explain this to my patients why we as a state cannot get this done because I can't understand it myself. So please, there is still time, work with us, work with each other, and please finally do what's right. 
I'm just going to point out one thing that's you know obvious from working in this building is that it's it's really hard to change your mind, right? It's really hard to change your mind about something publicly, especially in a workplace like this, right? So we do, you know, we are cognizant of this and we're sensitive to it, and it's um, it, it takes a big person and it takes bravery to change your mind, especially on a political issue, right? That's why we are hopeful that so many of the Republican-led states close to Georgia have decided to change their minds and recognize the wisdom of closing the coverage gap in their states, right? So it's not just Mississippi now um, filing this bill through their LG, it's uh, Arkansas, where the former governor of Arkansas, Isa Hutchinson, spoke very highly of their decision to take on, you know, what's known as the Arkansas model, and we can talk more about that if you want to get into the weeds on, on that sort of detail. But he's acknowledged that this has been a good move for their state, right? It's um, the most recent Medicaid expansion state, North Carolina, has recently expanded. They have a Republican House and Senate also, right? So I think it, it allows people to have the space and have the cover to make the right decisions that they recognize, even if it is more difficult because they've been fighting against it for 10 years. So that's what we are trying to do. We are, we've been here for 10 years. We're waiting for Republicans to work with us and we're asking them, please be brave. The time is now. We can't wait any longer. It's uh, Representative Dr. Michelle Au, who's been on the show a few times uh, discussing this and many other topics, uh, waiting for the purported pro-life party to come to the table and talk Medicaid expansion. Okay, one last segment. Could be a big day for Fonnie Willis. Maybe a big day for Nathan Wade. Maybe an even bigger day for his former law partner and divorce attorney, now that his attorney-client privileges have been decimated just a little bit. That coming up at 2 o'clock this afternoon. We'll discuss the ramifications of that in just a few minutes when the Ron Show returns here on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Okay, here we are in the home stretch. Let's give you a bit from WANF-TV this morning. Good hear new testimony in a hearing to determine whether Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis should be disqualified from the Trump racketeering case. Atlanta News First, Rebecca Schramm is learning the judge has apparently ordered a certain witness to testify. We're talking about a man the defense described at one point as their star witness. Well, earlier this month, he declined to answer most questions, citing attorney-client privilege. According to our sources, the judge has now ordered him to testify. Take a look. His name is Terrence Bradley. He first showed up under subpoena a couple of weeks ago. He's a former law partner and one-time divorce attorney of Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor in the Trump case that DA Fonnie Willis had a now-acknowledged relationship with. The question is the timing of that relationship. Willis and Wade testified that they began dating after he took the case. Ashley Merchant, the defense attorney for Trump co-defendant Mike Roman, tried to get Bradley to answer questions that she says would dispute that timeline. Well, Bradley made it clear he didn't want to be there testifying mm -hmm. and he wouldn't answer most questions, citing attorney-client privilege. See, here's the thing. Terrence Bradley initially had some back-and-forth communication, I believe it was text message, with Ashley Merchant, Mike Roman's attorney. As Merchant was trying to portray this narrative, put this narrative together, that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis had been dating long before she chose him to be special prosecutor in the case against Roman and the other Trump co-defendants. Once they got Terrence Bradley on the stand, famously a couple of weeks ago, 
he didn't have a whole lot he wanted to say and wanted to cite attorney-client privilege. Then the cell phone data stuff came out last weekend, and there seems to be now at least a little bit of interest on Judge McAfee's part to put this all together. Back to WANF. Here's what Merchant argued in court. We can go all day about exceptions to this. Fraud to the court, that's an exception. Mr. Wade, we contend, has filed a false affidavit with this court. That is fraud to the court. If this witness has direct knowledge that that is not true, then that's an exception to attorney-client privilege. It appears the judge now agrees with her. According to our sources, he will compel Bradley to testify about anything he witnessed outside of attorney-client privilege. That hearing is scheduled for 2 o'clock this afternoon, according to our sources. We will be here, and we'll let you know what happens. For context, again, I go to Anthony Michael Christ, who is a uh, political scientist and law professor at Georgia State University, who tweets this morning uh, about uh, 5.45 in the morning. Poof. Good morning from Fulton County, where we are set for an extended evidentiary hearing re Fulton DA disqualification. A couple of possibilities. Terrence Bradley has information from things he saw that backdate the Willis-Wade relationship. Could be generic impressions or damning. Did he witness them flirting or hanging out? If he knows something more, were the two testifying with candor? Is this just splitting hairs over the definition of a relationship? It could range from meh to bombshell. We really don't know. Option two is that Bradley knows nothing. And here we could learn that he was gossiping and led attorneys to believe he knew more than he did and or there would be more in the divorce filings than there was, which means he's taking the stand primarily to clear the reputation of the attorneys the state called to sanction. So either Bradley does have firsthand knowledge of matters contrary to what he testified to, which could range from a shoulder shrug to major deal or... Bradley created a lot of drama because he enjoyed gossiping that created a mess he didn't think his fingerprints would be on. We shall see this afternoon. In a prior tweet last night, by the way, Christ also said that if Bradley has nothing much to say, which is very possible, I suspect there isn't anything to plead to, but rather Judge McAfee wants him to eat crow for the benefit of the defense attorney's professional integrity, and I think that would be reasonable but who knows? So here we are again. <laughs> As I mentioned with uh, uh, Chitra Rat- Raghavan yesterday, we're on this roller coaster ride none of us wanted to be on, and we're just breathlessly going on the highs and the lows and the sharp turns and curves. And uh, at two o'clock today, uh, Judge McAfee will begin what could be a pretty boring evidentiary hearing or another bombshell in the saga that is the Fonnie Willis Nathan Wade. Uh, entanglement soap opera, which again, here we are four and a half, nearly five minutes into this conversation on this segment that we've yet to bring up the Trump Georgia election interference part of all of this. As Fonnie Willis said before, you've been intrusive into people's personal lives. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. So again, at stake is Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis, the district attorney's continued performance in the matter of uh, Donald Trump and his co-conspirators versus the state of Georgia in the election interference case and whether or not Fonnie and Nathan dated and when they started dated versus when they stopped dating and if she hired him improperly and uh, if she didn't pay him back properly when they would go on trips together. All of this delaying the case. 
I've said this from the start. I think this doesn't have so much to do with impropriety because honestly, that's up to the Fulton County voters and the Fulton County government. If they want to investigate her, we still don't have a candidate running against her. And if we did, I don't think that any Republican candidate running against her would win. So this has only one outcome that is plausibly good for Donald John Trump, and that is to delay this entire case until after the election and after he hopes he's sworn into office. It's going to do it for the Ron Show. We'll be watching. Replay 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, and then back tomorrow, 9 to 10 a.m. And listen wherever you podcast. Show notes at RonShowATL.com. Have a good one.